Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It's so easy to get started. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location. And in minutes, deploy your Linode cloud server. They have drool-worthy hardware, native SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, 99.9% .9 uptime guaranteed. We are never down. 24-7 customer support, 10 data centers, 3 regions, anywhere in the world they got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog to get $20 in hosting credit. That's four months free. Once again, linode.com slash changelog. Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, host of this podcast and editor-in-chief of changelog.com. On the show, I talk with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and a behind-the-scenes look at their company. On today's show, I'm talking with David Kramer, co-founder and CEO of Century. David dropped out of high school and college, but that did not stop him. He ended up teaching himself programming and eventually landed his first job as the webmaster of a World of Warcraft community website. What a beginning. We talked the initial state of Sentry as software, how it was no big deal to open source it, the early days of forming the company, the rough slog period, as uh, David says, and how they powered through to traction and enough profit for him and his partner to go full-time. They raised a seed round, a Series A, and more recently a Series B round for $16 million. Needless to say, David is very goal-focused and has some big goals, which we talked through in the last segment of the show. Enjoy. So David, let's start with dropping out of high school and uh, then later on dropping out of college as well. Were you bored? Why did this make sense to you? What was going through your head when you did? Maybe let's start with high school first because that was the first event, but why? What were you? What was your frame of mind then? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm from the Midwest and I think schools vary. I don't know if ours was good or bad, but it certainly wasn't like a school of excellence. Um, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, some kids, I'm going to say some kids have like this like rebellious nature. And I was never one who, I was never good about like, say, doing homework and things. Um, I generally got good grades, but it would be like, if I did tests, I scored really well. Or if it was like in classwork, I did really well. Or if I actually sat down and did the homework, it would be fine. Um, half the time I'd do it like in the morning, like before class or something. But a lot of times I would get like weak grades just because I didn't turn in homework. Like for example, uh, uh, so we had, um, where I grew up, school was like one through five is elementary and then six through nine is, is middle school, um, you know, and then high school. And, and in eighth grade, uh, so the year before going to high school, I, I took an algebra class. And I remember that you, like, basically you got an A in this class if you turned in homework. That's all you had to do. Yeah. And I got like a, I think I got like a C maybe, um, <laughs> just to give you an idea. And the class was extremely easy for me. And I was always really good at like simple math and certain things, which probably explains how I got into the software. Super, super easy class. But then I went into high school, uh, so freshman year of high school, and they suggested I take algebra again because I did poorly. And algebra was an elected class in eighth grade. It was one of the few elect, like sort of above the standard electives you could take. 
anyway, so I took algebra again and it was awful at this point. Like I was already bored in, you know, doing it the, the first time. And now the second time, I'm just like, this is the easiest thing I could possibly be doing. And then on counter side, I took like biology, which was also an elective over whatever the, I don't know, life science or something. Biology was actually like a little bit difficult for me. Anyways, I wasn't super engaged. And there's always these things where I felt like the system wasn't good. Uh, and so I would try to do things my own way. And that obviously doesn't work in like a curriculum. So uh, another example was like we had a, uh, was, I forget what it was called, but it was like this computer technology elective class in high school. And the way it worked is you would get a number of credits for completing a unit of work. A unit of work might be like a introduction to Excel or something like super, super easy, right? And so I already knew I knew like general computer stuff fairly well at that point. I was writing like some scripts on the internet, like PHP and stuff. Um, and so I went through and I did all of the like units of work I needed for all these easy things. So it's like Excel, Word, uh, I don't even remember what else, front page, if, if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, but all these little courses. And then there was like an introduction to C++. And so I, I did that one. And I was already done with like however many credits you needed for this class. I did the C++ and I just did that for the rest of the, I don't know, semester, I guess, which was probably like at least a quarter. Um, and I went through half of the book or, or more, and you were only supposed to do the first chapter. And anyways, I got, I got like a very bad grade and I didn't fail the class, but I got like a D or something in, in that course for not participating. And that's sort of like the, 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 my takeaway from high school is like, I didn't participate. So I got bad grades. Right. And I convinced my parents who, you know, I, as a parent will never be like this, but I convinced my parents to homeschool me, um, sophomore year. And then my parents weren't much better than I was about being on top of my homework and things. And also like homeschooling material for somebody who's not religious, homeschooling material is not very good. Um, it's all generally built for like, uh, like Christian private schools and stuff like this. Um, and I won't go into details there, but, but generally it's, it's more stuff that like upset me about like, like the way you learn like useful skills. Um, so I went through that and I probably only did like half the work and, and my parents weren't really on top of it. So I ended up like at the end of that year, just like not continuing high school. Um, so this point, sophomore year then? Yeah. So sophomore year wow. of high school, I effectively dropped out like at the end of it. Okay. Um, so you went through the majority, if not all of your sophomore year, and then you decided to homeschool, which would have been your, your, uh, your junior year, right? No, no, sorry. I, uh, I went through my full freshman year. Okay. Um, and then I was homeschooled my sophomore year. Okay, gotcha. And then it sort of like towards the end of that sophomore year, I basically just like at that point, I was like, okay, I give up. Like, this is awful. Um, I'm old enough. I forget what the age was. It's like 15 or something. Um, as long as you have parent approval, you can um, drop out. Anyway, somehow that happened. I don't even think there was a conversation, <laughs> but it did. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. Were you from a, a well-off family? I mean, was you, were your parents working? What kind of give me an establishment of like some of the home environment that makes that sort of an okay decision for parents? Even um, I don't think it was an okay decision. I think my yeah, I don't want to like give my parents any any grief, but um, you know, I come from like how would I describe it? Um, it's not hill people, but it's like lower working class. I would say so. My my mom, so my mom and dad separated when I was really young. My mom probably makes at that time. $20,000 a year. You know, we lived in a small town. Um, yeah. The town I grew up in was only 12,000 people. So to give you an idea, and we had moved to a smaller town, which was like 1,500 people. Um, so like, you know, even though it's only $20,000 a year, that's still like, it's like ends meet, you know? Yeah. But it's not like a, a wealthy family or anything like that. I ask you that because, I mean, it when I was reading some of your story, I was, I was thinking like, aside from the dropout, like 
very similar and based on what you just said there, very similar too, because I came from a, a not well-off family. My dad passed away when I was really young. I was two and a half when my dad passed away. So I basically grew up with mom only and then family, of course, you know, raised by a village kind of thing. But I mean, in all intents and purposes, I basically dropped out of high school, but I didn't like I continued. I just didn't participate. I just went through the whole thing. Didn't have the homeschooling option there, but I didn't do very well, and I'm still where I'm at today in spite of that. And so that's kind of what I was sort of trying to, you know, unravel rather than, like, shaming your parents. I was trying to figure out, like, you know, where did you come from kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was very much they were working all the time. And, you know, they have their own um, – not goals so much, but their own requirements of life. Mm-hmm. So I sort of get it on one hand. But, yeah, it is very much like a working-class family, you know, most of the time, like, just raised by my my mom, actually. But – um. But yeah, it was certainly an interesting, interesting path to get here. So sophomore year, you're homeschooled. That didn't really work out. What happened to junior and senior? So I don't actually remember like what the transition like. I think I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was sort of a mutual agreement or something that like, okay, like we're not going to be able to convince you to do it. And you're like very strongly opinionated. So we just stopped. And I, I literally don't remember anything other than that. Like if there was a process I had to go through or something, um, hmm. whatever it was, my parents or my mom handled it. But Did um, you feel weird around friends, like not participating in like dances and like all these typical common things that people do with high school engagements, like sports and stuff like. Yeah. So I think for, for probably a year or two, I did like a year or two. I didn't, I actually had like no plan in life at this point. Um, so a year or two, I'm sort of like, okay, like. This is a little bit weird. Every so often I see some of my classmates that I'm not friends with. I still like had uh, a couple friends um, that I was close with um, from school, but uh, I would see others and it would always be this like awkward thing. Like, oh, like we thought maybe you moved away or something. It's like, well, no, you know, but otherwise, like I didn't really think that much of it. You know, I was, I spent a lot of time on the internet at this point, like just building little things. I like interacting a lot. Like I, I got like into like IRC and stuff. So I met a lot of like interesting folks and like whether it was technology or other hobbies online. So that sort of consumed me at that age as well. As you're seeing, I was just thinking like raised by the internet came to mind. Do you think that might be <laughs> somewhat accurate? Uh, just, yeah, I don't know. Maybe like I would say I, I learned so much by having access to the internet. And it's actually like, you know, I think one of the reasons I care so deeply about technology is because I was able to just do so much. And the internet was like very open at that time, right? Not that it's not open today, it's, but it's a very different kind of internet these days. It was like a greenfield. It was like everything was new. Everything, everyone was still discovering. And so there were no really established ways of doing things. There were no yeah, yeah, exactly. conglomerates like Facebook and Google running and ruling. You know, not that they, they sorry, they do. They definitely do. They run and roll. <laughs> that, it wasn't like that quite then. Everyone was still trying to get theirs. Yeah, I think a lot about this because, like, you know, we recently went through GDPR. And one of the reasons I forget, I was doing an interview with, um, I think it was a local newspaper here in San Francisco. You know, this was like a PR influence newspaper. So we did some prep to talk about, like, what I'm even going to engage with. And one of the things that came to mind for me was, like, like I, I loved the Internet and I loved that I was able to build Century. I loved that I was able to build my early, like, websites and stuff and get them off the ground. And then GDPR is just an example of something that's come along that actually makes it a lot harder for, for individuals to build something. And these big conglomerates actually make it a lot harder for anybody to build something. And our technology makes it a lot harder for anybody to build something. Like we just create these like new barriers to entry from, for something that was originally like very easy to get up and running on. And so to me, that's kind of like, you know, I, I love what the internet used to be. I still love the internet, but it is, it's a very, very different place these days. Definitely. Definitely. 
Well, how, how much does dropping out of college play into your story? We went deep into the high school portion of it. I feel like, uh, I, I don't know what, what happened there. Like, did you, did you <laughs> go from drop out of high school kind of with no real plan in life to somehow like, okay, let's try again. Let's go to college. I was working at a Burger King for, I want to say one to two years. I forget exactly how long. And at some point I like, I got a job. I don't remember how this happened, but I got a job working on a website where I was supposed to produce content. Um, and it was a, so it was a gaming portal. So it was, um, at the time world of Warcraft was just coming out. So it wasn't hugely popular yet, but the gaming community was already really into it. So I got a job building content for this World of Warcraft website. And originally I was supposed to be like writing guides and things like that. Instead, because I had some degree of like like scripting and engineering skills, I started actually trying to like extract data from the game by just like mining the files. Anyways, suffice to say, like I grew that pretty well over the course of a year, sort of had transitioned from like doing this Burger King thing into... I would say a prestigious like job, but like something that was actually more tangible and giving me more direction. And then from that, I actually joined a company called Curse, which was my first sort of real job that anybody would know what it is, doing sort of the same thing. And they were this big portal for World of Warcraft mods, like add-ons, like little scripts and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and eventually we had a bunch of other properties that were like, you know, a database for World of Warcraft where you could look up items and things like that. Anyway, so I joined there as sort of like the, the lead developer with like three other guys who were also like 19 years old. So there was, it was literally like a family of like three French people myself and then like another French guy, which was very interesting because they didn't speak English well. So it made for an awkward couple years. That was sort of like what got me like out of, you know, where I grew up. And then, you know, over the course of, I guess, another, so, so it was about like, let's see, it was a number of years. So it was probably like five or six years between the time I dropped out of high school to, I'm like, oh, I want to go to college now for no good reason, honestly, at this point to go to college, I guess I have to go graduate high school. So I went and I got my GED like in the summer. Um, and I started school like that fall and I lasted like five months and I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm not learning anything. It's like, it's like on one hand, it's stressful because I had like, you know, I was still like working full time. I was doing like remote contract kind of consulting work at the time. So it's stressful because of that, if there was anything interesting to learn and anything that was sort of applicable. So like, you know, technology was like very easy and it didn't feel like it was a good spend of time or money. And so I, anyways, I ended up quitting that pretty quickly and then, and then, you know, back out here to San Francisco. So you said Midwest, where's Midwest for growing up? Just so we can understand you're now in San Francisco. Where did you start out at? Right around Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. So like United States of America, right in the center. Yeah. So tech was easy for you. I mean, it was the easy least path of resistance for you essentially. And everybody learns differently, right? Everybody has this different path. Cause I'm similar. Like I didn't do well in high school. I went into the military a year after I graduated I intended to go to college, didn't feel confident enough to go, didn't feel like it was a place for me. I just didn't understand why you would go. Like, I didn't have a purpose. And then, you know, in a similar way, I found tech to be easy at some point, you know, several years later. And I never got a degree in anything I do or had any formal training in anything I do. Everything was like, like you, self-taught. Yeah. That seems to be a norm to, to people. I mean, not all the time, but it's it's sort of like in a... A normal anomaly, let's say. Yeah. I, I always tell people, like, especially when you're, like, interviewing candidates, like engineering candidates, like, you could have somebody that comes from a great school and they can be amazing. You can have somebody that, you know, doesn't, like, come from a school at all and they can be amazing. I think if you put people that have the drive to succeed and learn at something, you know, generally they have interest in it, and you say put them in a great school, you're going to actually create, like, a, a really great success. But not everybody has the same opportunities, right? 
or at least they don't understand what those opportunities mean. So like maybe I could have chosen to go to like a, like a CS program at some point, but I had no idea I wanted to do that. I didn't even know what a CS program was when I was 15, let alone like early twenties. Um, I was sort of just like, I was fascinated by building websites and stuff. Right. So just sort of like you find a way, I think if you're motivated. You said at one point in this conversation, the system wasn't good. And, and just given, you know, your success and the things you've done over the years, clearly, you know, the educational system didn't play a huge role in your success simply because you said the system wasn't good. What do you, what do you think about the system today? Like, do you think about that at all? Or do you just sort of just not worry about the educational system and how, you know, there may be solutions to it? Do you have any ideas basically? I wouldn't say I have ideas. I think one day I would like to give back and see if there's something I can do to help. Like Century, for example, we give Century for free to any education uh, group that is like, if you're Harvard and you want to use it for your own programs, you should pay us money, but we'll happily give it to all your teachers and students. You know, in Century, you know, I, I don't think it's quite as interesting Century for a lot of people just because like you sort of need like a production application and stuff. But it's it's the easiest way I have to give back right now. Yeah, um, I would like to do more over time. I don't know what the state of it is. And I know it's, it's drastically different in different um, areas. You know, for all I know, schools around like the Bay Area are great. They're probably also like really expensive. But um. But I like, you know, Nebraska is night and day. And I would like to think that one day, at least, you know, I think this is a, a, a national problem. I'd like to think one day we'll get better about education. At least we'll start educating people sort of for the future, not for the past. Um, that is like more technology education and stuff, like building those trade schools earlier in school. I don't follow a lot of the work there, but like Code.org, I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the work they've done historically around trying to get sort of programming into curriculums and stuff. I think that's like super important. Some of that's biased though. I don't know if that fixes the core of the problem of education. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a very complex problem that I generally don't have much insight into these days. I'm just curious because, uh, you know, you're, you're a problem solver. You obviously have had, you know, your own personal angst with the system, even, and you know, try to do homeschooling. Thoughts college might be better for you again later on, give it another try, and that didn't work out again. So you sort of had like two tries and not so much fails, but just dis- disappointments in the system. Uh, I, want, I want to make one note on there. Sure. College, actually, I didn't mind. I liked college because it treated you like an adult, and it's like you don't have to show up to class. Like literally you can just do the homework and turn it in and things like that, right, which is actually like quite refreshing. So, for example, to give you a little bit deeper dive, I did. A, I was going to a community college – and then I was going to transfer to the university. So I did two quarters because it, it, you basically book them in quarters, right? And the first quarter I did calculus, uh, sociology, and German. Um, so nothing related to, to technology, right? Other than you could say math is maybe. But um, calculus was really interesting. It was actually like really hard for me because I didn't take college algebra or any of the sort of prereqs. The only reason I was able to sort of jump into calculus is because the GD I tested. I basically tested out of math. So that calc was the only requirement I had, which you had to take at a college level. And that actually was like really taxing. And and thankfully Wolfram Alpha exists and was able to help me through like understanding some more of the things. Yeah. But um but so that first quarter was actually like really tough, but it was interesting, right? I actually did very, very well in grades and all there. Um and then the second quarter I switched to like, you know, and in, in retrospect, this is an awful idea. I switched to like computer science courses at a community college. Uh, I don't even know why at this point. I think I just needed to pass some time. Um, and I, I technically I did learn some stuff here. I never really knew how CPUs worked before, for example, 
not that I wanted to know, <laughs> um, but I was forced to learn a few of these things. But I didn't have to go to class. And at one point, I think I did like two months worth of homework in like a weekend or something. And it's like out of one quarter. So it's like two thirds of the homework. And I thought that was actually kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but at least it allowed me to function uh, better. Um, so I, I at least think that was set up more reasonably than like my sort of uh, earlier educational experiences. Let's fast forward a little bit and, and tease essentially – what I feel may be the beginning of your CEO journey, although you, you really began back at your at your sophomore year with electing to cheat, to take charge of your life and do something differently. But it seems like Century began sort of on accident, let's say. It's open source. You mentioned that, you know, in some of the back channels in conversation between you and I, that uh, you know, Century was started just by scratching an itch from some sort of response to the community and in the Python community, uh, how to log things, you open sourced it, no big deal. Does that that somewhat summarize that moment? I think that very well summarizes that moment, the no big deal part. The no big deal part of it? Yeah, it was very much no big deal. Like I actually did a lot of this stuff back then. You know, like I said, like the internet was sort of, you know, as you call it family to some degree, like I was very, very, very active on, you know, the early days of social networks, which was IRC. Right. And so I was just always answering questions and like talking to other people about what they're doing. So it's like, oh, you have a question, I'll, I'll help you like understand it in code or something. And, and so for me, this was like, you know, an everyday occurrence. This was probably a little bit more in depth than most days, but I, I did actually write like tons and tons of little like snippets like this back in the day. So, or what started as a snippet at least. So at the time when you wrote this though, you were, I believe you were at Dropbox. It, was there any concern with like, being related to, you know, your employer stuff? Did you ever have any concerns around that? Any, I think about everybody pretty much these days who start a startup, they tend to have a main thing and then their their side hustle or their accidental project turns success, you know, that kind of thing. Did you ever have any of those concerns or worries inside of Dropbox? So actually, um, let me, let me correct a little bit. So actually like I started it way before a company, right? Uh, uh, I might've been employed. I was doing contract work or something, but very disconnected from a company. Right. And then when I really built it, I was at a company called Discuss, which are still around, but they're not um, sort of as uh, known these days. And I built it really for Discuss, or rather I expanded what it did drastically or rebuilt it for Discuss. And then I just spent a lot of, and it was always open source and freely licensed, so it was safe. Then I spent a lot of time building on it in my free time. And I was very ethical about this. Like, if Discuss needs something, I'll do it during work hours. But if Discuss doesn't, I'll do it at home or on the weekend, right? And that's a very common story. And I think, I honestly, I get a lot of people that talk to me and they're like, hey, we're really, like, we admire, like, you know, what you've done with Century and like, this is how I do it. I'm like, that's literally how I did it, like nights and weekends, right? And then when I was leaving Discuss, going to Dropbox, that's when I had started the sort of the SaaS service, which is the business. You know, going into Dropbox or a company, you you do have to be careful about this. You have to make sure you're crystal clear that, hey, I own this thing or like this is this exists and stuff just to make sure you're all on the same page. And, and companies are usually fine about it. But it was still very much at that point, nights and weekends, like how do you make this run? And I, I think it's, you know, to some degree, you might say, well, like work-life balance, like you shouldn't have to do that. But like, you know, nothing's free. And I sort of look at myself and I, I took all these sacrifices of my own personal life and my free time to achieve what I have today. And I, I have like no regrets there, right? And I, I think to some degree, maybe you have to do that. Now you can go to the traditional route and just raise a ton of money or do something else, or maybe you, your family can support you. But I think if you can do it in like your spare time, it gives you ample opportunity to validate that it actually matters. 
right? And not everybody has the luxury to sort of just sit down and be like, yeah, I'll just quit my job and I'll work on this for six months to a year. episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Vettery. Vettery is a hiring marketplace that connects top tech talent with growing companies and all candidates are fully vetted before appearing on the platform. Vettery is also making Monday morning something to celebrate with a fresh batch of fully vetted candidates every Monday. If you're a startup or anyone looking to expand your technical teams, Vettery's matching algorithm will connect you with highly qualified tech, sales, and finance candidates. And they've also released a comprehensive tech salary report for 2018 with insights from actual employer hiring for top technology positions in New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. Use this report to learn exactly how much software engineers are getting paid so you can make the right offers when building your team. And this report is available to you, a listener of Founders Talk, absolutely free. Head to vetery.com slash founders talk to learn more and download this report. Once again, that's vetery, V-E-T-T-E-R-Y.com slash founders talk. the tools open source that's out there freely available you're doing nights and weekends and on your own you're building it you're, you're working at dropbox this time and someday something happens and you're like what hey this hey this could be a business so there's an open source component but then there's also this this for-profit business venture what made you think it could be or should be and what gave you the courage to do it yeah so i think Historically, I've always been risk adverse, so that was actually a pretty big decision. It was it was a couple things, like two major factors. One, uh, we actually had a number of peers in like the Django community that are like, "Hey, you know, like, why don't you like host this? I'd, you know, I'd pay for it." I'm like, "That's cool. I, you know, I, it's fine. Don't need to. It's it's free. You can run it." And then had a couple other peers be like, "You know, hey, why don't you actually like closer friends, not just peers? Um, like, why don't you actually do this? Like, like run this?" And then one of them actually worked at Heroku at the time, and they're like. Hey, you know, it's really easy to get a Heroku add-on going. You could just start it there. And I'm like, okay. And that was actually around like a holiday break. And, you know, I, I don't know how this works for you, but in a lot of software companies, like a couple weeks around Christmas, nobody really gets anything done. Half the people take vacation. So I actually used that time to build the SaaS service uh, to get it off the ground. And when I did that, I, I convinced one of my colleagues from Discuss, who's a designer, to really come on sort of for the business component, um, you know, just because it's better to have two people than one. Um, and he had been helping with the, the open source project already anyways with design, but, uh, but yeah, so we kicked it off there. Um, and it was really driven by demand. And it was, to me, this is actually like really cool because, um, Heroku actually sponsored credits for us from the beginning. So we didn't have to pay for hosting day one. Actually, uh, the person works here, for, uh, but our first, our first customer works for century. Um, but day one, we had a customer and it was this person. And I think by the end of the first week, we had like 10 or something. So it was like really, really great for us. Right. So it proved that there was something there. You know, we weren't charging much money, but yeah, 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 for sure. The downside is like, we charge them all like $7 or something, which seems like, oh, that's fine. But like the lesson learned is charge a lot of money if you're going to do this as a side project, because depending on the kind of business, at least the mental cost is going to be extreme. And so if you have lots and lots of paying customers, you have lots of customer support, 
potentially maybe you have to deal with like like server concerns. And if you have a lot more revenue coming in, you can just buy like more expensive servers, like things like that, right? And I didn't really think through those early on. I'm just like, how do I make this cheap to run? How do I not lose money on this to where six months from now, I'm spending like a bunch of money out of pocket and I just say, you know what, this is awful, I'm gonna give up. And so I spent a lot of time trying to keep it lean early on. And, and I've actually never put a dollar into the company, which I'm pretty proud of. For the first three, three, three and a half years of its business um, is fully bootstrapped and profitable. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, zero dollars. Um, I, I guess that means you grew based on revenue. So you, your growth was based on your customer growth and or, you know, proven market value, which was what people were willing to pay you and the profit there, there from that. Yeah. Uh, the caveat is myself and my co-founder were gainfully employed by other companies. So we didn't have to take a salary, of course. But, you know, we were able to like slowly transition into like taking a, a real salary. Like early on, I think maybe it's after a couple of years of doing it um, in our spare time, like we were like, okay, let's pay ourselves a little bit. Um, yeah. So we, we took like a thousand dollars a month um, salary per se from Century, which is very, very little in San Francisco, especially after taxes. But over time, like the margins, they got better and better, you know, as we got more customers um, to where when we did finally quit and do it full time, like we could match our salaries from our from our previous employers, which is a really nice, liberating, also low risk moment. But it was a, it was a slog to get there, like lots and lots of painful nights and painful weekends, painful vacations kind of thing. Describe that. What's the slog of that? You know, is it uh, what's the hard part? Is it the growth of the company? Is it establishing the product? Is it proving it fits? Because, I mean, clearly from day one, you had a customer and by the end of the week you had 10. So it wasn't a so much as a product market fit. What was the slog? Yeah. So I often tell people the first the first third of century was like it's sort of like that passion. You have an open source thing. You're just building it. It's fun. Right. It's just like pure like joy if you like building things. Um, you get customer feedback, you build new features, no cost. Now, probably after the first year of running the SaaS business, um, maybe a year and a half or something, we started getting into a point where like, you know, scale became a concern. Like we could no longer, at some point we had to move off of Heroku because like the service couldn't perform well enough on Heroku. So we had to move on to servers, had to configure all that stuff. Um, you know, I there are, I think, three different occasions where I was traveling internationally where we had like an outage. Um, that was pretty serious and hard to deal with. I, I specifically remember I was in the Vatican museum in, in, I guess the Vatican, but in, around Italy. Um, and I'm sitting here on my phone with like an SSH client logging into production, clearing the celery queue because like something was going wrong and it couldn't keep up. And, and, you know, this is still pretty early in the life. Sorry, early customers. Some of you still pay us. But I'm literally like just deleting their data to some degree because like everything was on fire. Right. And there were a lot of moments like that where it was very stressful. And like if I'm at Dropbox and, you know, there's a serious customer support issue or if God forbid there's like an outage. Right. What am I supposed to do? Like step out and be like, hey, you know, I have to go do my own stuff right now. Sorry, Dropbox. So that actually like that was very stressful, like to where I had joined Dropbox because I thought it was going to be a little bit lower stress. It was not. And I thought Sentry wouldn't be that painful. And I ended up with like two extremely demanding jobs at the same time. And that actually was sort of like a turning point for me where, you know, one of the reasons we went full time on the project was we had to let something go. It was either like let the Sentry opportunity pass or leave our jobs. So how did you know that Sentry was the right move? Did you and Chris sit down? What was the qualitative things that you sort of looked at to say, you know what? Or were you, you said you were risk adverse. So being on your own was 
probably the most risky thing you could have done, right? I guess depends or just get a different job. Yeah. So I think, I don't think it's as risky as I thought it was because getting a different job would be easy, right? Chris had decided to leave. He was at GitHub at the time and he had left GitHub probably like maybe six months prior to me leaving Dropbox. And he's like, okay, like maybe I'll just work on Century full time. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Now, caveat, it's a little bit less great when, uh, so my co-founder, Chris, he's a, he's a great designer. He's technical, so he can write JavaScript and CSS and HTML, but he doesn't do like the other stuff. So even though he's full-time, there's still like a limitation on my time, right? So he went full-time. We were able to like pay him a good enough salary. And then I was able to go full-time at the end of the year when I had like sort of coordinated my departure from Dropbox and pay like a well enough salary. And at that point, we we sort of were like, well, like we can pay our bills. So it's not it's not a, a big risk. We don't really know what we're going to do with it yet. Like we didn't, when we quit our jobs, it wasn't like, yeah, we're going to, you know, three years from now, we're going to have 10,000 customers or something like that. It's like, oh yeah, this is a cool, like we've sort of built a little business. Maybe it's a lifestyle business. We don't know. It was very open-ended at that point. Well, since you said lifestyle business, I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Like clearly Century is not a lifestyle business. Now maybe it is, you can tell me for sure, but it seems like it's not it was a lifestyle business what you were trying to go for. Did you intend to get where you're at? I don't think we ever intended to get anywhere along the way. At no stage was anything intentional other than like, yeah, I guess we'll start the same. And okay, yeah, let's go full time because we sort of need to, to like, to be sane. And then I, Century is definitely not a lifestyle business these days. And the turning point for me was um, when we went full time on the project, specifically when I went full time on the project, we'd already talked to one of uh, one of my friends and, you know, now an employee of Century, uh, Armin Ronecker, about like sort of like, let's build something. It would be great to just like do things the way we want to. So like open source and whatnot. And we didn't know what that meant at the time. We thought maybe we'll build a bunch of products or something. We didn't realize it would just be us building Century into like this big giant idea. But when we did that, we also said, okay, there's two paths we go. There's one where we, we try to build this as like a normal business that's, you know, bootstrapped and we compete with the market, which is very, very hard in technology. And even worse, we had a bunch of competitors that had sort of sprung up while we were not working on it full time. And they weren't nearly as big as us, but they were there. They had employees, they had venture capital. So we sort of are like, okay, like if we if we just keep this bootstrapped, there's a very good chance these sort of like corporate entities come in and put us out of business. And I'm a very competitive person and I wasn't happy about that idea. So I'm like, the alternative is we go raise money with the stipulation that if we raise money, we build this into the biggest thing it can possibly become. And that's what we did. But that was like a big decision point, like where we all had to get on board with this idea of raising capital. And that was actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, it seemed like it would be easy because there was so much interest early on. And we made a bunch of money. I think when we went full time, um, when, I, when I left Dropbox, we had 2,000 customers, uh, all paying. And we had about 600,000 in revenue. Um, so we're doing fairly well. But we weren't like super wealthy, right? So engineers in San Francisco say they get paid 150K a year or something in that ballpark. You know, we could maybe afford, you know, three salaries, maybe, right? And then we were growing fast enough that maybe every couple months we could afford another, but that's that's still not it's not growth, yeah. Yeah. And you're running close to the line at that point, which is always scary, right? You don't have a ton of capital in the bank or anything. So the risks are even though we could afford to pay ourselves, like what happens if like we lost like ten percent of customers one month or something, right? So it's still a little bit scary. So let's examine this, because I mean that's something I've thought of too is like you start a business, uh, it's fun, it's a side thing, whatever, it's lifestyle, however you want to describe it. It's not so much that it's not serious, it's just that you didn't have to make the choice you and Chris eventually had to make, which was the venture capital route and the reasons you said. So let's you know sort of like tie that in there. But 
I feel like the market, if you're going to be in a business and you have to compete and other competitors come in, at some point, the market essentially says, are you serious or not? And there's a response. And I feel like sometimes, like you had said, you could have kept growing uh, in the bootstrap method. You know, your business was growing, but not at a rate at which you could on the long term compete. So you it seems like you were forced to make a choice of either remain one way, which was the bootstrap lifestyle, you know, sort of blase kind of way, even though it was legit and great to say, you know, a large injection of capital to grow and scale. And that usually means, well, that is venture capital. Yeah. I would agree that is it's like um, it's a choice like how serious are you about this opportunity and that's what we saw it as to be clear like we're like you know what we actually we built something here there's clearly traction we have more paying customers than most businesses will ever have in this space so like why don't we see what we can do with that and it was kind of one of those things where you know we didn't set out to build like a true business right we never did we just like building things but given the opportunity why why would we let it go and, and I, you know, I think you hit it on the head. Like there's a lot of like companies, companies are like, you know, sort of small businesses in our space that they do say JavaScript error tracking, but that's the only thing they do. Right. And they've got a nice little lifestyle business, but we weren't content with that. Like we have, um, we have a mission here, which is very much driven from me, which it's the, the, the utmost sort of pillar of our business objective. And that's what we say every developer, every single developer at every single company, every single hobbyist, but every developer. And you can't really have that as a lifestyle business. Um, it's just too aggressive and, and, and it's a very real objective. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics analytics, we can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative correction to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to Algolia.com. So having been through venture capital and, and this market push, whether you like it or not, we'll, we'll find that out, into this next phase of century, the business century, you had to take venture capital. What's your relationship with venture capital? Is it a love-hate relationship? It is like, I, you know, it seemed like you had a, uh, a journey to share, which everyone does around finding capital and raising funds and stuff like that. What, what is your story around whether you like it or not, love-hate relationship? I don't think I really have feelings about it. I understand it a lot more now than I used to. You know, I used to always make maybe not so nice jokes about companies who take a lot of money and why do they even need that much capital, all these other things. And we probably all do that, you know. I actually understand that much more deeply now and I would probably distance myself from those kinds of things. You know, when we first took capital, we took a small seed round uh, led by a colleague who used to work at Dropbox. I think we're somewhat fortunate 
to have him as an investor because he sort of understood who I was, that I'm just a builder. I don't know anything about running a business. Even though we had already built the, the business, it wasn't intentional. It was very organic grassroots. And he actually helped a lot and still does. Like So that, that's that been very valuable. But honestly, for the first two years of you know raising capital, to some degree, we just sort of like tricked them that we knew what we were doing because it was growing to a reasonable degree. And they would tell you they were not tricked, that they absolutely understood who I was. But that And that's fine. But we didn't spend a lot of time on the business. Like the first two years, we went from myself and my co-founder to another 20 engineers. Um, and then I think we hired somebody in finance and a customer support person. And that's roughly it. It was basically like, okay, somebody needs to own these problems. I don't want to own them. So let's like outsource those. But we didn't really do anything like that a traditional business should be doing, right? Like we didn't have sales. Uh, we didn't have like marketing. We didn't have really have like half of the functions we now have as a, as a company today. So at that time it was, it looked a little bit like a traditional VC backed company, except we were like just doing really well. Like when we raised our series A, um, which was like $9 million, which is not a small amount. We were actually profitable when we went into that conversation, which I think is probably not very common. And, you know, that, that's a subject like profitability can be good and bad. So, you know, it doesn't really matter on this side, but to us, that was an achievement, right? It proved that we actually have a business here and we don't know what it looks like yet, but there's something here and it keeps growing. And that's always been interesting for us. But I, I think like, you know, venture capital has been nice because it's given us a lot of breathing room. But it certainly has a cost. Like I actually treat venture capital almost like a loan. Like if you raise money, the bar has been drastically raised, right? Like you need to understand that like you don't just raise money and it's free. There are serious obligations every time you bring in a new round of funding. And those obligations are about rough. It's like how much money you make. Like you build that revenue line, right? And I think a lot of companies, early stage companies make that mistake. And that's why you hear these stories of like, well, like I thought we'd be able to raise another round and we couldn't. And that's, to be quite honest, that's the fault of the founders. Like I have, I know the expectations of us if we are able, if we are to go out and raise like a future round. I know sort of what our company has to look like, the milestones we have to achieve. Before or after? Before, before going into that. I know them today for a round, even if we're going to raise it in like two years or something, right? And so I know what we have to work towards. And, and I think it is something that's interesting because like, you know, early on, I would have said this feels like a distraction. It feels like it's, it's the stuff I don't want to focus on, but it's actually the stuff I need to focus on as like the CEO. Right. And the, the venture capital has been a forcing function for that. Right. It's like over the last, I'd say a year, I've actually probably become what looks like a real CEO. Like my commit graph on GitHub certainly shows this, but that's been a very, uh, I don't know what my emotions are about it, but it's been a transition for sure. Whereas like before this, I really just focused on engineering and product. Um, And now I actually, technically I run every department at Century. So marketing, sales, customer operations, you know, I I have people that I trust that run them much better than I do, but they still report to me and I still drive a lot of decisions throughout at this point. And it's just very different than building a product now. Now I'm I'm actually building a company um, and it's a lot of new skills to be quite honest. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting transition for a CEO stuff I don't want to focus on, but I have to and need to, and then dealing with that change. So as an engineer, you know, transitioning to these things, I don't know, is it, is it tough to, to make that transition? You you shared some things there, but kind of go a little deeper into, into, you know, what you have to do, right? Like you said, you're mission minded, you're very competitive. So maybe these things are easier for you, but I'm, I'm thinking of the listeners hearing your story and thinking like, 
you know, I just wanted to do my thing. Like this was a lifestyle business or this was a fun thing. And now I had to, did you just come to grips with it and you're slowly becoming okay? Or do you really enjoy being a CEO? You know, it goes back to what I was saying before. Like if you want something, you have to be willing to earn it, right? Like I want this company to be extremely successful. And whether I wanted to be like a CEO in the proper sense or not, doesn't really matter because my goal ultimately is to make this company successful. And how is it going to be successful if I don't do that job well, right? That's the way I think about it. But ultimately, a lot of this comes down to like, I have to be willing to change my mind on things. So two years ago, if you asked me about sales, for example, I, I would tell you that Century does not need sales. Like we get plenty of signups. They pay for Century. It's great. Now I like, I love our sales team. And, and that's because our sales team is not the, the type of sales I don't like. And that's actually a nice, uh, a nice uh, function of my job is that we get to build things like the way we want to, right? So our sales team is very um, inbound focused. You're not going to see them like cold emailing like thousands of people or anything. What they're actually doing is just providing a really good customer experience to the people that expect to talk to a salesperson, right? And that was like two years ago, I was just very naive about it. I, I frankly was ignorant. And now I fixed a lot of those behaviors, but I had to come to grips with like, you know, a lot of my just preconceived gut reactions of things aren't going to be correct. I might have like reasonable opinions and, and instincts around things, but I still have to be willing to understand things I don't understand. Right. And that was a big change for me because I actually think instinctually I'm very good with software, but it's also because I've been doing it for, I guess, like 15 to 20 years at this point. And I don't have any of that with building a business other than like I can get like it off the ground and I can probably figure out how to charge money. So, so that was like an interesting come to grips moment, like where I have to just suck it up and do all these other jobs. Now, frankly, I still struggle with it sometimes. Um, I still write code almost every day for better or worse, um, but it's no <laughs> longer code that matters, right? Like people are not relying on my code to succeed here at Century, but other people are relying on me to make sure that we're setting direction in the company to make sure like, you know, people aren't accidentally building walls in our organization, like silos of information, you know, to make sure that we have a mission or that we're building the right things. Um, and so that's been very interesting. Honestly, I, like, I joke with people for quite a while. I've joked about this is that I'm more of like a, a mediator and an, an administrator than I am like somebody that does like something tangible, like a builder, or, like a hands-on person anymore. Even though I like, I do miss that a lot. Like there's certainly gratification in just like, you know, diving into something and, and, you know, getting in the weeds and solving the problem as CEO to some degree, that's like, it's like, it's bad if you do that a lot. Like you don't want to be in the weeds. You want to let other people like solve their problems. Yeah. Cause every time you're in the weeds, right. If you think about the true metaphor, right. In the weeds means that your visibility is reduced, right. You're probably in the thick of it. You can't, your purview is sort of taken away from you, but you know, in the role of CEO, typically elevated, not so much in terms of like better or worse, but just in the fact that you can see more, as you'd mentioned, you're in charge of all the departments while you have people in those roles to trust and, you know, report back to you and, and there's a communication, you know, flow there. If you're in the weeds, you're probably neglecting things. Yep, absolutely. And that, that's sort of like, that's my coming to grips moment. And I still struggle a little bit, but one of our investors had to constantly badge me like, what are the three most important things for you right now? And for a long time, I'm like, there's too many things. I can't just do three. And now I explicitly don't do like other things. I'm like, if it's sort of not, maybe I'll do top five or something. But if it's not in those, I just say, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter if I can or not. I'm just not going to. Because it's usually not important or somebody else could do it. And potentially somebody else can do it better than I can. And so that's actually been like a really interesting exercise. And genuinely, I think like if you took 
all of my learnings as being CEO now and you just like, and I went back to being an engineer, I bet I could use a lot of these to do my job better. Like, because if you think about like as an engineer, a lot of your like challenges like, well, what should I be working on? Like, how do I like prioritize or like, oh, but I need to do this thing. The customer says this is broken. Like, and if you go down and you say, what are just, what are the most important things? That's, that's ultimately what you look for in like a, I would say like a very senior level engineer to be able to project manage well, right? And ultimately the skills I've gotten better with are those kinds of skills. Let's do a, a little fun thing here. What are your three most important things for you right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I have to come up with them. So like last week it was hire a CFO, hire a head of product. I closed both of those, thankfully. And then uh, we're implementing OKRs here. And the OKRs are just, those are sort of like the tasks, I would say. But the ultimate like three important things were like, okay, like we need product execution to like really ramp up so we can build this big new product thing. We need to fix strategic finance and business insights and all this stuff inside of the company. So that's hiring the CFO. And we need alignment and visibility into what everybody's doing across the board and to make sure we're doing, we're on like shared missions and that's OKRs. So that's sort of how I, I drilled into those. Now it's sort of like, okay, like that's done. I'm going to finish this OKRs thing. And then what's next? Part of it's like we're, we're doing a bunch of like new kinds of marketing and stuff and making some changes there. So that's going to be top of my list. And then we've got to, you know, I think the others are going to be like onboarding these, these new executive hires, kind of like making sure they're very successful and sort of get off the ground running. You mentioned before that you know, you, you know where you need to be to raise more funds. And you've been through two rounds. Is that right? Three rounds. Three rounds. So that means... Series A, Series B, Series C. Series C would be the next round. If we next raise round. It. So you did two Bs and one A? Uh, C to A and B. C to A and B. Gotcha. I'm not very familiar with all the terminology around raising funds. I just know that it is funds. And I'm somewhat familiar. Somewhat. Yeah. I, I'm still getting Just keep getting increasing versed. the letter. That's what I figured. That's why I said C. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so given that you know where you need to be, is that, you know, is the vehicle for growth for Century does it always tie back to venture capital or is there a point now that you've gotten enough capital to grow and, you know, like rewinding back to your original velocity in the bootstrap method when you were there, like you could keep growing, but you couldn't compete on the long term because of competition to market. So you had to make a choice and you did. And that's where you're at now. You've been through a couple of rounds of funding and you realize the growth vehicle. Is that the next step for you? Will you keep raising funds or will you eventually be self-sufficient financially? One day we will be self-sufficient. Right now, our ambitions are much bigger than our bank account. And in that, I mean, and I can be very direct about this, like, be direct. I, I want to replace New Relic in the industry. And we're not going to do that with sort of where we are today. Certainly not quickly, right? And that's a much bigger ambition. And maybe that's not actually replace New Relic, but I want to tackle a lot of the problems that New Relic has owned for a very long time in a very specific market very differently. And, and the challenges of that is like, it's potentially a lot of stuff to build. Um, it's a lot of stuff to support. It's much bigger than this error tracking component that Century has today. And there's certainly like, what venture capital is honestly for is it's purely to allow you to spend a lot of money to make big bets. And those big bets are entirely made to grow faster, right? So a very common reason to raise money is because uh, you're a, a, like an enterprise product or something and you have a sales force and it takes about a year or maybe two years to get the revenue back from that sale, but you can sort of predictably do that. So you're going to go raise a ton of money, hire a ton of salespeople, 
you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of money for the next one to two years. But then after that, you're going to see like a drastic increase in cash flow, right? That's not us to be clear, but we would like to drastically expand our engineering presence and our, our sort of product line. Right. And doing that is either one going to take us, you know, until I'm like old and gray, or it's going to take a lot more people. And so if we raise money again, it will certainly be to like go for a much bigger target is how I would talk about it. Not that it's a bigger target than what we already have internally, but publicly it's a bigger target than what it looks like we might have today. When you're thinking about these kinds of things, I'm trying to think of it like, okay, you'd mentioned like uh, we started with this, uh, with this conversation around like what's important to you right now. So you're in the now, right? And maybe the now is the next year, year and a half, maybe. How do you think about what's important to you over the next five years and maybe the lifespan of the business? Like, do you, do you concern yourself with the longevity and the sustainability on the long term, or do you simply sort of focus on, at least now, you know, focusing on like where, what you need to do now to get to the next milestones? Are you milestone based, or do you sort of like have this bigger vision outside of that's many, many years, maybe decades in length in terms of a plan? Or at least an idea of where to go. Yeah, so I'm like traditionally a very tactical, iterative person, um, which means I'm milestones are my strength. We have maybe a two-year outline of what we'd like to do. We have we have business targets, and that's actually important, right? It's like we need to hit this much revenue, and like how fast can we get there? And these are very, very big targets. Um, these are like maybe we can hit it in three years if we're like amazing. Otherwise, maybe it's like four or five years, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the farthest out we look, but that's only from like a, an abstract revenue goal, right? Um, everything else we do is like, okay, we know we want to build this kind of stuff and we know that's our solution to expansion. So let's build this stuff. Let's, let's figure out how we charge money for it, make it reasonable. And let's set milestones around like short-term growth. So we do like, we probably don't look farther ahead than a year in terms of goal setting. And most of what we do is on a quarterly basis. So we are doing stuff that, you know, is like six months out at this point, but it, it's very vague. And I, like we intentionally do that. We say like we have quarterly goals and they sort of map up to some annual goals, but like be willing to throw away everything the next quarter kind of thing. Um, and I, I think that's actually like totally fine. You know, I, I can respect like big established companies like Amazon where they can project out exactly what their bottom line is going to be in two years and things like that. But I have no idea how they accomplish that kind of stuff. And and to me, it seems a little bit less interesting. It's not creative. Whereas, you know, being able to react still like ensures it, it ensures you keep like moving towards something new. Cause like Century has been around a very long time and we still constantly change the product. And now we're, we're building like bigger giant products and stuff on top of it. And that's like somewhat uncommon, I think for, for, for products that have as large of a reach as ours. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it's like an interesting challenge. And I think I've always struggled to become a more strategic thinker other than I can give you some like pie in the sky, like product vision or something, but it doesn't mean we'd actually work towards it. Yeah. You just seem very visionary and vision focused. And I was just curious how far you stretch your vision and remain relevant and not in the weeds. Cause sometimes your vision can be your weeds, you know, not just mm -hmm. in the fun, you know, tinkering you might do cause you're an engineer at heart but also just in like illogical thinking about long-term future goals that just don't make sense to focus on now. Cause Hey, you know, th there's things on fire today. Like you need a CFO or you need head of sales or head of product or whatever it might be to get to the next bigger milestone. That's where your focus should be. So I just wondered how you balance 
those perspectives, but keep them both in check because you need to have, you know, a long enough term vision to to sort of course correct along the way, but enough of a dream to to reach. You know, like you said, I'm curious. Um, it, it sounds like you've had some pretty significant challenges as a CEO. You've been tested. And given where this conversation began with dropping out of high school, all that stuff, you've learned a lot about being a CEO, at least what you've demonstrated here in this call today. I'm curious, like, where did you get this knowledge? Did you get it literally by, uh, you know, bloody knuckles, being in the trenches? Did you read somebody's blog? Do you have advisors? Obviously, you've taken funding, so you've got people that come in and give you advice. How did you learn what you know? So I'd say one, I've at least been around the block a few times. So I've seen a lot of things happen in companies that I can respect. And on the counter side, I've seen a lot of failures that I don't want to repeat. So I, I have a lot of prior knowledge, even if it's not actually running like a company or a business function. So that's helped me immensely, right? I think I sort of have a tendency to just deal with problems. Like I, I sort of naively assume everything's easy to solve, which, you know, for better or worse, um, it does give me, I think, an advantage that I'm willing to try to just like do something differently or just assume something's going to work, even if it completely fails. That's helped me a lot. I think there's a huge benefit to being a startup CEO in that uh, if you're the founder specifically, um, you're actually given a lot of freedom to mess things up and to learn along the way. Like if we hire an executive, they're not given that same kind of luxury, right? right. Like, you know, the CFO has to actually fully know how to do their job. Whereas like, I've been able to learn how to do my job better and better. And I, you know, I'll, I'll be better at tomorrow and next year and, you know, the likes. And then on top of that, I've actually found our board of directors, uh, like genuinely very helpful over, over the years. Like they provided good feedback. They sort of keep my, um, wrong opinions in check. They sort of push my right opinions. So that's, that's been immensely helpful. Honestly, how do you deal I, with that? the, let's camp out on the wrong ones. How do you deal with being wrong? In those cases, do you take it personally? Do you have thick skin? Yeah. So I, I actually tell every new hire um, because I try to break down this like CEO barrier because a lot of people think like, oh, CEO, like be careful around them. I don't know this weird mythical thing. Right. And I try to break that. I, I don't succeed at it for what it's worth. But um, and one thing I tell them is I'm like, you know, you feel free to DM me on Slack. If there's any questions, context switching is no problem for me. I'll, I'm happy to answer them. And I also tell, tell them also if I give an opinion, it's because you asked for it. It's not because I care about it. Um, which is very true. And I always say I have strong opinions weekly held. And I, I don't like take offense if somebody disagrees with me. Now, some opinions I'm very strong about, right? Um, and generally, if if you come with like a well-articulated reason, and it doesn't even have to be like that thought out or that data back or something. But if you're like, if it's not just off the cuff where you haven't thought it through, then I have no problem at all, like just completely changing my mind. And we used to always say in like board meetings, like if, uh, so we had, we have two investor board members. We used to always say if both of them agree on something, I should just accept that it's almost certainly true um, because they're, they're drastically different backgrounds, in my opinion. And that actually has like worked out pretty well. And I, I think that kind of balance has always been healthy. And that, that doesn't mean we didn't like get into like debates all the time about like, oh, should we do this thing or this thing? Early on, it was it, it felt like, oh, hey, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Like me, like the founder, right? Like, oh, I know how to build this. I know my audience and stuff. And it would be them being like, you know, really, you should probably be hiring a CFO right now. And it would it it used to take me a long time to come to grips with the stuff they were saying and uh, to sort of agree with them. 
but I think now after going through those experiences, I've gotten much better about agreeing on the things that I think, you know, ultimately is what I think, but agreeing on the things that are certainly important to me, but that doesn't mean I agree on everything yet. Right. Like, so, you know, I don't think my investors are always right, but I always think they have a valuable opinion to add. And I think that's an important mindset you have to have, not just as a CEO, but I think as anybody that's going to be any kind of leader, whether it's like an executive in a company or a manager of a team, or even just like, sort of like this, like inspirational, like, you know, superstar, like engineer on a team, right? Like you right. want to be that leader and, and being willing to hear other people out. And that's actually one of our core values here at Century is like super, super important. So I have like two major questions I want to ask you before we close up the call. And one of them is like, what in your role as CEO do you, do you loathe? Like you, you have to do it. It's something that you, you know, you know, it's part of your role, but you're like, man, I just don't like doing this. And you probably as CEO can't ever really offload it, but you got to do it. What is that for you? I actually think I generally don't like managing people like period. Um, I've never wanted to be a people manager and that is 100% my job at this point. Slightly different than a normal people manager. Like I'm not just here to like coach you and to be like, well, what do you think we should be doing best? Right. I am here to somewhat delegate, like, no, we need to get this done and I need to hold you accountable, but I don't really enjoy the people management aspect. I like, I really like when I can hire somebody and they can be like mostly autonomous. It, it just, I don't know, maybe it's the engineering me, like the efficiency of it, you know, but I've seen over time that that is often a mistake. You need that, that personnel management and growth and stuff. And so actually I have like, 10 or 11 direct reports now, which if you read any book, I think they suggest seven is the maximum. Um, Whether that's true or not, you know, the internet's full of a lot of advice. It's all use case specific. Um, 11 is certainly a lot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that a struggle. Um, I'm sure like some of my reports um, don't get as much time as they need to like help them grow, but I think they still do like a really good job. But in general, the like Whenever I have to go through like performance reviews or, you know, God forbid, like an employee uh, sort of needs to be doing better. Like those are like the, the worst situations for me. I just, I like, I don't like that conflict. I've gotten better about dealing with it, I think. I, and I honestly, I think I'm fairly good at it these days, but I still don't enjoy it. I feel you and I empathize. But uh, the next bigger question for you is, is what do you fear most as CEO? Like, you know, obviously... You're in the role you are, you know what you've done in terms of venture capital raising, you know the milestones, you know the next milestones you have to get to to raise more money if you, if you decide to or eventually become self-sufficient as we talked about. I don't even know where to plant this question, but you may know because you'll just you probably instinctively have a place to plant it. But what is your biggest fear as CEO? Like today, tomorrow, a year from now, where do you place this this question? Yeah, all I think about every day is sort of not losing. Like I say, you have a reason to show up to work and mine is always to like be the best at whatever we decide to do. And so my fear would just be like, you know, we build new products or something and we just like, we can't win against the competition. Cause then like, what are we, our business isn't going to succeed at that point. And I think about that in every little thing we do. Like, how do we make sure this is the best version of it? Like, how do we make sure like we, we literally measure ourselves by how we stack up against all of our competitors. And that's like, sort of people in our direct space, which is like error tracking, which we perform exceedingly well against. Like we, we generally don't lose against a competitor anymore in that space. Um, so we consider ourselves doing great there, right? That's how we measure it. And then we sort of measure our future against the wider like, like application monitoring space, which is like New Relic and whatnot. And we actually lose quite often if, if like 
were going up against New Relic and, you know, they already pay New Relic, right? They'd be like, well, New Relic sort of does what you do too. Why should we pay for you? Even though it's a completely different product. And that to me is like, we have to get over that hurdle. And what I think most about, and it's not like a serious fear, but it's the thing that I think most about and the biggest risk I think is like, we have to be able to get past that hurdle. And, but I, I'm like, you know, again, going back to being like very naive, I'm very confident to some de- to a degree of arrogance that like these hurdles are not that hard to pass. It doesn't mean I know like the easiest way to get there, but I certainly believe we can do it. But that that is where a lot of my my thought process goes into. I mean, I can I can empathize with that that arrogance, or maybe even somebody thinking it's arrogance because. When I do any of these things like Enneagram or Strength Finders or skills, like one of my top skills, like visionary and self-assurance is always, always in the top two. They either flip-flop or they're always in the top two. So for me, I, I kind of maybe place that on you as well, it seems, because you seem very visionary. You seem very self-assured. That's not really arrogance. That's just that's just confidence. You know, and I think, I think that's, yeah. you need to have that as a CEO. I think earlier in my career, it was arrogance and much more these days. It's confidence. Well, I'm sure we can go a little deeper on some of these subjects. Um, let's close the show like this. What's do you have anything super secret that's not out there? No one knows about it. It's coming up. Maybe you can tease it, drop a landing page, whatever. I don't, I don't know what you got, but is there anything happening in the near future since you're so goal focused? that uh, we can tee up today here for the for the listeners, either as a CEO, as the business, or, or new product? Yeah, um, I'll focus on product because ultimately that's all I care about. Um, so interestingly, nothing's really a secret because you can just load up our, uh, our repository on GitHub and it's all in there. But um, we're sort of building, you know, I mentioned this new relic thing. We're, we're trying to enter like the application monitoring market, but like a, a different spin on it. So we actually... You know, I'm gonna say nobody's seen this yet. We gave um, a pretty hefty big feature to like some select customers uh, a week ago, which is it's like advanced search. It's not that interesting on its own. Uh, but what we're sort of building now is this idea where, you know, I think of myself as a developer whenever we build product, which I think is the advantage I have. And all I care about as a developer is like, you know, I shipped new code and I screwed something up, right? Like that's all I really want to know. Yeah. I like, it doesn't really matter to me like, oh, there's this bug from like a year ago and it's happening a bunch or, you know, it's happening a lot more now than it used to. Like, yeah, that's a thing, but ultimately it's not that important. And so we think about that, that idea and we decided to like basically not pivot, but like hedge the entire company and product against this idea of what if I could tell you, you know, when you ship new code, this commit that you have in here, it's causing this error, but not just this error. What if I could also tell you that it it just made the signup page 500% slower, but like this specific commit, right? What if I could tell you that like, now you're getting no signups and we're pretty sure it's this commit or something. Like, I think that's like a very fascinating spin on what we've traditionally looked at like monitoring uh, for. And more importantly for me, it gets to like this continuous iteration cycle. So it becomes part of your change control. So we're actually building like a lot of that stuff right now. And we've been building it for the better part of this year, honestly. Turns out it's pretty... It's a pretty big technical investment when you overhaul everything. Um, but I'm super excited about that. And I, I think we're going to have stuff uh, coming out to like early adopters on Century in the next, maybe by the end of the year, but it's going to be in pieces. So what the ultimate end product looks like, I have no idea, but we're trying to aggressively go after this APM space. We're calling it APM for developers. And the developers part is really, we think about like the reason errors and everything else matters is because you changed code. And that, it's ultimately, that's the causation, like root cause, right? Right. Um, 
and that's our spin on it. So I, I don't quite know what it's all going to look like, but um, you know, I was talking a lot about we want to invest a lot more, and that's what it is. We want to build something bigger at this point, like something wider reaching, and and honestly, something that changes the game again, just like air tracking once changed, sort of like the logging or monitoring game, right? And so we'll see, but uh, that that's sort of like the big thing that I, I think a lot about lately, and that that's where a lot of you know we talk about like a couple year vision. It's all in that area. So so as a CEO on a podcast that you know, has a decent reach. I mean, we're not talking to every single person out there. I mean, you just shared, you know, you just shared the future, you know, where you're trying to go. Does that ever worry you that you're putting your, in quotes, secret out there? Because you said it's in GitHub in the repository. You don't seem like you're trying to hide it. Does that concern you? Not at all. I'm very confident in our ability to execute. <laughs> I, I just don't think anybody else can surpass us. We've got like, you know, on the order of 35 in engineering at this point, any of our direct competitors are much smaller than us. Our bigger competitors, like when have you ever seen like a giant company sort of pivot? So I, I don't really, I don't think there's a lot of risk in sharing it. And it's it's part of our core value. Like we believe in open source. It's not like a business maneuver for us, right? Like I really care about open source and I don't think it's a, a harmful idea, right? So I don't think there's harm in the transparency. If anything else, it like, it helps our customers be like reassured that we're thinking about the future and not just this one thing that we're giving them, right? And so I, I think I think it's it certainly has its risks, but I, I don't think they're that significant. So we talked about fundraising earlier. You mentioned uh, when you go to whomever is in the Series A or Series B, you've got to share with them where you're trying to go. I'm sure that the money they you know give you the valuation it's all based on this bet, as you had said that you know getting lots of money to place a bet essentially. Back in, in May earlier this year, you raised your Series B, $16 million. Was this part of that conversation? Uh, so actually, we raised the – this is a little bit of a trick. We raised the money last August. We just didn't do any press about it until May for whatever reason. But uh, it was not part of the conversation. Was that strategic? I'll, I'll say that. Not, not sharing the, the details? Uh, well, it was strategic, but we didn't really mean to wait until May to share it. We were going to do it early in the year, and we just didn't get around to it, honestly. Too busy. Yeah. Gotcha. So was that part of the conversation then or, or is like the bet mostly? Because to go back to, you know, placing these large bets, it, like you'd mentioned, a large overhaul, you know, it's a significant shift in your business, much wider reach. Was that part of the bet? No. So in that case, it was literally the capital was just to grow like our our core business and like the revenue generation there and everything. And that's really what we had been focused on for quite a while now. Still building on it. Right. But, mm -hmm. but growing that core business like right now, you know, because we actually were a pretty healthy business. So we actually still have a lot of the capital we've raised in the bank. So we are doing that with that capital, but it wasn't part of the original conversation. Gotcha. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm, I'm sure we can go much deeper. I'd love to do a, what I'm calling a, a founders, like a founder update kind of thing, like along the way, you know, given that we have a good portion of your story now, I'm sure the listeners will eventually be curious later on, like as you meet these milestones, some, some updates along the way. So I'd love to dive into maybe more of these conversations with you in the future and uh, hopefully you'll agree. For sure. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to share. Any closing advice for those listening who may be going down a similar path to, to encourage them or keep them going or a small lessons learned that we can share on the departure of the call? All I'll say is it's never easy, but like I think the rewarding things in life are never going to be easy. You do have to work very hard for them. So. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. 
right, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Founders Talk. Do me a favor, assuming you got some value from this episode, share it with a friend, rate the show on iTunes, favorite it on Overcast. This is the best way you can help me and the show and help others to discover it too. Thank you to our sponsors, Linode and Vettery. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, and to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Lino Cloud Servers at the Lino.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you on the next one. What venture capital is honestly for is it's purely to allow you to spend a lot of money to make big bets. And those big bets are entirely made to grow faster.